Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Greg Barnes and Ross Martin. That's our weekly InsideCarolina.com podcast. Guys, appreciate you joining me. Let's get right to it. I think the biggest news of the week, certainly on the football side, is Antonio Williams transferring from Ohio State back to North Carolina, local kid or a North Carolina kid that was committed to Carolina uh, for some time as a high school senior. Ross, I'll start with you and let you go from there. I mean, this is a guy that has long been coveted by North Carolina, and now he's finally coming back. Yeah, I mean, a guy that was committed to UNC for 10 months and you know went to a freak show and was decked out in UNC gear, a local kid down the, down the road in uh, Stanley High School, North Stanley High School, a little bit southwest uh, of Chapel Hill, and um, was part of that class and then flipped to Wisconsin, was committed to them for a little bit, and then once Ohio State showed interest, he flipped to Ohio State and it's come full circle with him um, – you know, transfer into UNC and he's going to have to sit out the 2018 year, it looks like, and uh, and then be able to be eligible for the 2019 season. Um, and I've heard, I talked to um, Alex Gleitman up there with Buckeyes, um, the Buckeyes site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And, um, you know, he said the, that Antonio Williams had a great spring and was poised to have a big year. He had a pretty good sophomore season. You know, it showed some flashes and, and got some reps but he was just kind of farther down the depth chart than he wanted to be. I think he was behind, you know, two studs and, you know, Ohio State signing five stars and four stars left and right. And he just wanted a, an opportunity as, as Don Callahan kind of detailed in his uh, premium article there. Um, just wanted a chance to kind of start new and, and, and just have a, an opportunity to just play more. And I guess that's the sentiment with a lot of these transfers kind of recognizing where they are with the, their current program and understanding there might be a better opportunity to show what they could do at a program. Um, and it just made sense to, to come home to North Carolina, but it definitely adds a talented player. Um, a guy who was good enough to, to sign with one of the top five programs in the nation and uh, is going to come in with a, you know, a college ready body and kind of be more of a power back than what UNC has on the roster right now. It's Michael Carter and Jordan Brown. Uh, not a huge kind of Elijah Hood guy, but a little bit slighter than that. But at 210, 5'11", definitely has um, some stockiness to his build there. So it'll be interesting to see how he's used. We won't get to see him for a while, but uh, definitely the biggest news happening in, in the middle of April right now. Greg, when I look at our InsideCarolina.com message boards about this, one of the most recent posts is commits to UNC, decommits, commits to Wisconsin, decommits, commits to Ohio State, decommits, or I guess he transfers, commits to Carolina. And what's next is the question posed. And I said it sort of in jest off the air, but uh, that person better be really, really hot. If you're going to take her back or take him or her back after you've tried for so long to get them. Um, and now that's the position Carolina's in and the program's certainly welcomed him with open arms, your thoughts on that. And then I want to ask you both about, uh, you know, deeper into the roster look when this uh, transfer occurs and when he actually gets to campus. Well, you know, what, what Antonio told Don uh, was going into uh, this off season. He told Urban Meyer that, hey, you know, I want to be in a position where I can be part of maybe a you know a three-man rotation at running back. Um, that's kind of my goal. And that evidently did not happen uh, in spring ball. And so he, he made this decision. Uh, so very clearly this is about, you know, playing time. Um, in terms of – in terms of that dynamic, uh, there's a level of trust that has to be you know, put into place there. I mean, you know, there's there's so many guys that we can reference over the years. I mean, who's the most recent one from Pitt? Uh, Chris Clark, because he's the tight end. Yes. Uh, that seemed to commit to everybody, uh, and he's played for different places. And then who was the? Oh gosh, this is gonna this is gonna stick with me. Who was the guy that played for North Carolina, then transferred to UCLA, defensive lineman? Oh, I can't um, remember the name. Somebody will put it on the message boards yeah, right after five this years hits. Ago. Right. Uh, but very talented kid. And 
So there's scenarios like that, and those are the ones I think most people understand. Uh, but then you also have situations where kids, you, uh, they're, they're highly touted come out of high school. They're all world. Um, they can do no wrong. And then you get to college and reality hits. And so a lot of those kids say, okay, well, maybe you know, my, my pants were uh, you know, not, as, not as big as I thought they were when, uh, when I stepped on campus. Uh, and I, I think that's probably what you, you have in most of the situations. So I think, you know, Antonio very likely could be coming in and saying, hey, you know, I've kind of been knocked down a peg. Uh, I'm ready to, to get to it and maximize my potential. And that's what you hope the situation is. I do find it very interesting, though, when you look at the depth chart at running back, um, you know, with him sitting out this year, next season, Carolina is going to have Jonathan Sutton and Jordan Brown both the seniors, Michael Carter uh, and Antonio Williams as juniors. And then you've got uh, Devin Lawrence and Javante Williams, either going to be, you know, uh, redshirt freshmen or sophomores. So you're talking about seven guys right there without adding anybody into this upcoming recruiting class, fighting for uh, playing time at, at running back. We all know that you know, Larry Fedora's base offense is 11 personnel, meaning just a you know, single back back there. Um, he has been showing a willingness in recent years to use two guys at times, but the, the, you know, very little playing time to go around for, for so many guys. So, Ross, let's talk about that a little bit. Now, I don't know if y'all have seen the YouTube video. Um, it's called The Transfer, and it's Jared Goff, the St. Louis Rams. I think he's St. Louis, or the L.A. Rams quarterback, and he gets a wig on. He gets uh, you know, some fake tattoos, a big old fake mole, and he goes to like Ventura College or somewhere, and he shows up, and all these guys are like, "Man, who's this guy? He's this quarterback," and all the other quarterbacks are, you know, like wondering who he is. Is he going to take their job? And it's kind of some tension, and he's talking trash to him. It's a great video actually, and then he performs. And he just tears it up. He doesn't at first, but then he starts tearing it up. And they're all like, you know, oh, you know what? This guy's legit. It's like Hercules. And he gets there. And then they break it to the team. And so they're like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. But the point of my long-winded statement is the feeling when he was there from the people that were on the team in that position there's got to be a little bit of angst and I'm not trying to start anything, but it's a legitimate discussion. We've got Jordan Brown, you've got Michael Carter, you've got Javante Williams coming in. You've got uh, Jonathan Sutton. You've got other guys. I mean, now they're bringing in a known quantity. It's really going to test the team first thing, I think. Um, and it can build it or it can break it, Ross. But your, your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think you always think about that when you bring in a transfer. It's kind of the same thing with Cam Johnson for basketball. A new guy coming in and expecting to get some minutes, but you're displacing other players, and that's what's going to have to that's going to happen a year from now with a guy like Antonio Williams. Um, you know, he he spoke about leadership in his article, in his quotes to Don about how he wants to come in and be a leader, and he's really been working on his leadership skills. But I think the key is just coming in and kind of just being a guy, being a dude, uh, really working hard, showing that you're there for the right reasons, going in and doing all the team stuff, being part of the team, um, hitting the weight room, doing all the the extra workouts they do in the off season, And then you'll have a, a whole year to kind of just be on the team before he can even start getting minutes. Um, and when you look at that depth chart, it, I, I mean, I don't know Antonio Williams as a person. I do know kind of the personalities of some of the running backs. And you would think, you know, the main guys right now are um, Jordan Brown and Michael Carter. And those guys are selfless. I mean, Michael Carter is a great, very vocal, great personality type guy, super nice, super outgoing. And, and Jordan Brown's kind of the uh, not as outgoing, but, you know, a good kid from all we hear. There doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be any issues there. And so, I think it's set up perfectly for a guy like Antonio Williams because there's not a, a really a stud right now. I think Michael Carter can be that guy. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's good to have that type of talent, a guy who kind of knows what it takes to, to be elite, having worked under Urban Meyer and been in that Ohio State program. I think that's, that's going to be good. I think he's 
comes in with experience of just knowing how a program works and knowing what it takes. Um, and then, like you said, you look at those numbers, you know, seven or eight guys in two years from now, and we think about what happened last year with injuries. Um, so it doesn't hurt to have another body in there at, a, at an important position and a guy who's pretty talented that obviously UNC wanted from the beginning. Um, so, I mean, it, of course it's an issue. It's something that Antonio is probably thinking about and the running backs probably thinking about and, and the running back coach probably thinking about as well. So it's, it's definitely a, a topic to discuss, but I think, I think, you know, these kids want to play. And so, um, I think it'll, it'll work out okay. By the way, have you all seen that freshman you mentioned? Have you seen a picture of him? You see that picture that was tweeted out with him? He looks jacked. He has no neck. Um, the the <laughs> freshman from uh, from North Carolina. Um, what's his name? Williams. Javante Williams. Yeah. Have you seen what he looks like now? Uh, he's, he's huge. It's, it's, I mean, it's huge. It's crazy. So they've got some bodies now. I think that's what they needed because kind of last year they, they missed that banger with uh, the other freshman going down. So it'll be exciting to see what um, – uh, Antonio Williams can't do. Greg, you know, we've kind of talked that out and you bring up Cam Johnson, Ross, and I want to go there um, for our next topic. But Greg, on this transfer deal, we kind of talked about that briefly before um, we started recording. And I want your thoughts on the transfer rule and the possibility that, you know, it could be immediate eligibility for anybody transferring. I mean, I just think, just as an aside, not Carolina specific, but I just think that's insanity and, and will create insanity. Um, at, you know, the rich will get richer, but, you know, if anybody's any good at any smaller school, then they, they bolting for a bigger name. Your thoughts, Greg? Yeah, you know, it's it's a very interesting dynamic because I am all about the players uh, when it comes to the NCAA. Uh, ever since this NCAA mess started with UNC back in 2010, one of the first things I looked up because you know, I didn't know a whole lot about the bylaws at that point in time, and you start looking for a um, you know, student's uh, bill of rights in the bylaws, and there is none there because, as we found out in the Michael McAdoo case back, I guess it was in 2011, 2012, the NCAA lawyer sat there and said, McAdoo cannot sue us because we do not recognize him. He has nothing to do with us. He has everything to do with the university, and that's who we deal with. So they point blank said they really didn't care about the players. And so from that point on, I'm very firmly in the position of whatever these players can do, whatever we can do to help them, whether it be to pay them somehow, whether it be to let them transfer uh, immediately, I'm all for. Now, to your point, when you get to that point, you say, okay, so how does this play out? And I think the concern is, like you say, Tommy, is you know, if, if you just open the floodgates, you're going to have a ton of kids at smaller programs that just blow up and have great careers all of a sudden saying, you know what? I can go to Alabama or I can go to Texas or I can go to Florida State and play for a national championship next year, uh, I'm doing that. Well, at the same time, you have these five stars who are maybe on the you know, the fourth option at quarterback at somewhere, USC, saying, okay, I can go to this school, and maybe all they need is a quarterback, and maybe I'm the guy that can help them contend for a conference championship. So I think you would see crazy stuff going on, um, which – in some ways would be fun, but that's very frightening for the stability of the college game. So what the working group is is trying to figure out is how do you structure that? Uh, and so they're looking at a bunch of different things. Okay, number one, uh, you, if you're going to transfer, you have to have very good grades. And they've talked about anything as high as a 3.5 to be eligible to transfer and play immediately. That's pretty significant, especially when you look at the – uh, the academic rates of a lot of these football programs. And there's not that many you know, football players that have that high of grades. This is kind of the facts of the matter. So that, that, that makes it very tough. Then you also have, you know, if a, a kid can transfer and he can play immediately, if the coach that he signed with is no longer at his institution. And so, you know, for example, if we say Antonio Williams, well, Urban Meyer uh, is still there. So if that was one of the uh, bullet points 
that was kind of checked off, then that would not apply to Antonio Williams. And so there's a bunch of different little topics like this that they're tossing around saying, okay, what's valid, what's not? Uh, and they hope to come up with kind of an agreement and a proposal uh, in June. That's when they're meeting again to kind of iron some of this out. Uh, so a lot of just variants uh, and, and these topics being thrown around. And I, I think we're too far out right now to have kind of a good idea of how it's going to look. I think everybody's in agreement that this probably should happen, but they don't know how it should happen, uh, which I think shows some um, progress. But at the same time, there are some serious concerns that have to be ironed out. And I think we're, we're a ways away from that, that taking place. Yeah, the 3.5 is a bit steep. I do like the coach one. That's a good idea. Um, but we'll see how it plays out. Ross, you got any ideas on it? Yeah, yeah. One last thing on this Antonio uh, Williams transfer. This kind of, um, you know, it, it kind of sheds light on the fact that sometimes it's okay to go to your in-state school that may not be the best program. You know, it may not be Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia. Come in and, and get playing time and play and be the man at your state school or a small school where you can go and, and, and get immediate playing time. I mean, we've seen this hundreds, hundreds of times, players leaving North Carolina and leaving their own home state for other schools. This is an indication that sometimes the grass isn't always greener and it's okay to go to a school where you, you maybe, maybe you get offers from big time SEC schools and schools across the country, but you know, it's okay to go to a place like Carolina or, you know, other state schools that aren't, the, the big time elite programs and play and get minutes and get exposure and represent your state. And I think that's kind of a lesson that um, I think a lot of kids learn the hard way. They, they want to go to the big shiny program and, and leave when uh, sometimes the, the best option is right in front of them that has, has showed them the most love the whole time. That's kind of my, I guess my UNC yeah. recruiting plug right there. Well, yeah, well, we've been talking point. about that for forever. I mean, yeah. when it Nick Maddox, Tommy, Back yes. in the 90s that, that had the television deal and picked Florida State over North Carolina. And that was – I know it wasn't the very front end of kind of the, the recruiting bonanza with the internet and all that a little bit before then. But um, that was kind of the, one of the moments that sticks in my head. And we've had this conversation time and time again. And I think a great example recently is Zion Williamson, basketball, Right. I mean, there was a lot of talk that, hey, he's, you know, he's probably going to go to Clemson. And Clemson really laid out this plan of, look, you're an in-state guy. You know, we've got a pretty good team coming back. You can be the man. You can be a legend in this state. Uh, if you come to Clemson, home state, if you live nearby, all your family and friends can come. It'll be a big deal for you. And he ends up deciding to go to Duke. So if he goes to Duke and doesn't have some breakout freshman year, and goes to the pros, the legacy's gone. I mean, there's no legacy anywhere for him locally at the college level. We've seen this time and time again in, in college football, um, in college basketball. And, you know, I guess it's selfish, um, but I agree with you. I mean, Ross, I, I think you, I think when, when kids can stay near home, and have friends and family and build that unity and have that camaraderie and that community, you know, 20 years down the road, you know, if you only knew what that would be like when you're that young, when you're that 17, 18 year old kid, um, yeah, I think you'd make different decisions, but you know, the bright lights are, are appealing for a reason, especially at that age. Yeah. And it, it, the bottom line is Ross, before I uh, cut you off, if you can play, they'll find you in this day and age professional sports have access to a million different ways to find guys. And we'll find out that at the NFL draft starting here, what Thursday night, Friday and Saturday, where you've got guys going to schools you've rarely heard of getting drafted. Ross, go ahead. Yeah. And um, I mean, on the Zion Williamson thing, I mean, he's going to be the third, he's the third best ranked player in the 2018 Duke signing class. So, I mean, he's just me another number, another guy, you know, up there with the other forgotten one and dones like Jabari Parker and just guys that I mean guys you you, you know their names but you don't really remember what they did at Duke because they're all gonna be one and dones um, and yeah I mean I don't know how good of a season's gonna have but he's gonna be just another one and done there and if he'd gone to Clemson you know he'd be their best recruit by far it'd be kind of like Ben Simmons at LSU where like you're their best guy ever and he's gonna get so many touches so many chances to dunk 
more chances to, to score in unique ways. And he's not only the, the third best recruit on that signing class, he's the third uh, small forward. So they're going to have some position issues, but I'm sure we'll dive into that uh, a bunch later on when the basketball season starts. Yeah, so I just wanted to say the name came back to me for the defensive lineman we were talking about earlier. Brandon, Brandon Willis. Willis. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to throw it out there. He enrolled in January 2010. So that's uh, – we're, we're getting old. Eight years ago. Wow. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Cam Johnson's decision to come on back to Carolina and do it again for his senior season and Luke May testing the waters, which I think is a great decision for May. We'll be right back after this break. All right, Ross, I'll start it with you with Cam Johnson since you referenced him earlier. Uh, I think that it is a large deal that he's coming back to Carolina for a variety of reasons. Um, but we can talk about the lineup issues. And I know oh, yeah. that you, you've you been pretty solid um, on the fact that Nas Little is going to start. And I think that with Cam Johnson coming back, I just do not see it happening. But let's let's break it down just a little bit now that we definitely know that he's there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Nas Little should start. I don't. I think I agree with kind of what Greg has been saying. I don't know that he will start with Cam Johnson coming back. I think it'll be a. This is going to be a debate we're going to have throughout the season. It'll be kind of a big deal and a big storyline because I think everyone said it. I mean, you got the point guard question. You know, whoever starts there, whether that's Seventh Woods or eventually Kobe White, you've got um, Kenny Williams locked into that two guard spots. We know that, and the the three position, the small forward spot. You know, you got to think that Roy goes with Cameron Johnson to start the season and brings Nas Little off the bench because Cam Johnson's the the senior. He's played four years in college. He's the sharpshooter. He's he's proven. He's, you know, we know what he can do. And then uh, Luke May at the four. And then, of course, Greg's going to say that, that UNC and Roy is going to go with a big man, whether that's Garrison Brooks or Sterling Manley. Um, and that's kind of the lineup I think that a lot of people think Roy could go with. I think you can go many options with this. I think UNC could go small again and, and play Cameron Johnson and Nas Little alongside Luke May, Kenny Williams, and a point guard. And I think that's a bigger version of last year's small lineup. Nas Little is a Nas Little is a, a six seven built, you know, strong guy who can kind of play that flex power forward position alongside Luke May. I think that's a really good lineup for UNC. With a six eight Cam Johnson, a, a six four Kenny Williams, a six eight six seven Luke May, and then Nas Little. So um, it'll be interesting to see what Roy does. Um, but I think it's a good thing that Cam Johnson's coming back. I think it adds another piece, adds some leadership, it adds that shooting, which uh, I think UNC kind of loses with Joel Berry, um, and you have a, a proven guy there. So it, I think it just adds more elements and more discussion, and it gives us content to talk about on this podcast. Uh, Greg, Luke May blows up in the draft combine. He stays in. They compare him to Kevin Love. Uh, then I think Nas Little starts. Other than that, <laughs> I think Nas Little starts on the bench and may stay there all year. And from talking to Sherelle on these podcasts, I don't think he'd have a problem with that at all. Um, he just wants to win and be a part of the program. But your thoughts as we you know look way ahead, and we'll discuss it plenty more down the road. Yeah, but- I don't think having too much talent is ever a problem. I mean, the only person I can really think of that got upset with playing time was Larry Drew. And that's just because that family thought that Larry should have been the starter, even though uh, I think most everybody outside of the program was like, okay, it's time for Kendall to take over. And once he took over, we saw what happened. Um, and so that's, that speaks to a couple things. Number one, the competitive nature of the program. I mean, if, if you're not competitive and you're not wanting to play, uh, then you need to go somewhere else, especially at this level. But also Roy's going to recruit guys that are about the team concept and about the family and about, you know, helping each other get better. And you can't have that mindset and be selfish. Um, and so, you know, like like Sherelle said, you know, with, with Nas and Kobe and they, all these kids, um, they want to win first and foremost. And, you know, as, as Roy always says, 
the players decide who play. He's not the one that decides. And so can Nas come in and just be incredible and phenomenal and somehow you know, work his way in as a starter? Of course he can. Uh, but kind of my vantage point, and I think Sherelle agrees with me on this, we, we've talked about some, is after kind of how things went last year, especially in that A&M game, Roy's going to do everything he can to have you know, Brooks or Huffman or Manley develop into a legitimate five-man so that Luke May can play his true position at the four, which I think would allow him to be a lot more effective, and I understand the efficiency numbers and how some of that works, but for him to play at the next level, he's not going to be sniffing the five. He'll be playing the four. That's one of the good things about you know, him going and getting feedback. Uh, I think that's the way this thing is designed to go. And then you're left with you Cam at that wing. Um, and I think there's plenty of playing time with, with Nas, you know, at the three and at the four uh, to play, you know, 25, 30 minutes. So it's not like it's a big deal whether he starts or not. Um, but but I, I don't think you can have too much talent. And the fact that this team has some question marks in the backcourt, um, I think that's going to allow you to, to you know, maybe play Cam occasionally at the two if you have to, just because the two and the three are, are really uh, interchangeable although that may be a little bit tough for him to, to guard a, a true two-man for a long period of time. Uh, but but you know, Nas, Nas will earn his playing time, and if he's fantastic out of the gate, then he'll play a lot early. It may take him a little bit of time, but it also has to do with how well Garrison and Brandon and Sterling uh, come along. Yeah, I got a little question for both of y'all. Um... I think there's a chance that, you know, eventually Nas could take over the starting job. The over-under at 10, 10 starts. Do you think Nas starts more or less than 10 games for UNC next season as a freshman? Greg? Uh, I would – I'll say less just because Roy uh, has shown over the years, and granted he's been more flexible in recent years, but he's shown a, a willingness and kind of somewhat of a desire – to have a stable starting lineup, and then he'll you know massage the minutes and and all that kind of changes towards the ends of games. You know we always talk about 05, Marvin Williams didn't start. He played a lot of minutes. He played a lot of minutes late in games, uh, and so I I would say right now that you know, under ten would be my guess for not starting. What do you think, Tommy? I, I would agree with under, um, unless there was. An injury issue. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, put somebody on the spot. Who did Marvin Williams sit behind in the starting lineup? Jawad Williams. I think Jawad's starting regardless on that team. That's a good debate. Maybe we can have these. uh, But Marvin finished and Jawad finished. So, anyway, I think Nas plays 20, 25 maybe minutes a game. But I I just don't see him starting. Yeah, it's be tough. Unless Manley, Brooks, Huffman just lay an egg, and I don't see that happening as well. So I'm going to turn this portion of the show over to Ross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, well, one thing one thing to add to this conversation before moving to the next topic, I think, man, UNC fans have got to be super excited for Nas. I think he moved up to number two in the 24-7 sports rankings. I mean, he's a physical freak right now at 18 years old in terms of what he looks like. Um, size-wise and what he can do. I mean, you saw him in the dunk contest at McDonald's All-American game, and he's got such a versatile offensive game, and he has that tenacity on defense as well. I mean, just kind of seeing him go at it against Zion Williamson, against some of the the best players in the country, I mean, it's it's definitely the, the most talented and, and physical player UNC's had in a long time, maybe since Harrison Barnes in terms of what he can do in year one. It's just going to be crazy um, seeing what UNC and Roy has, has in store for him. But my question, the, the, the thing I teased to both of y'all when we were talking earlier, I had a, a subscriber reach out to me, a buddy of mine, and he took uh, a little offense to what, something Tommy said a couple uh, episodes back. We were talking about, you know, what's the standard for UNC and, and how should they measure themselves in football to, uh, to Duke and to NC State. And his issue with what Tommy said was you know, the standard. You, I think Tommy said something about you have to beat state and duke 
And, and that's the most important thing. And I think I kind of posed the idea of, um, you know, the standard should be Virginia Tech and Miami. That's where UNC football has to be. And so it kind of brings the topic of, you know, what's more important, beating your rivals like state and kind of getting that level or should UNC, I mean, should the standard be competing every year with Virginia Tech and Miami, making those wins more valuable over saying, uh, say, beating the in-state guys like Duke and State? And I thought it was kind of interesting, the the juxtaposition of how important the state win is for, for coaches versus where UNC needs to be as a program when they can every year compete with Miami and Virginia Tech, the teams that traditionally you would think are going to be the coastal power. So I'll turn that over to Tommy to kind of, state his case and, and let Greg kind of dive into that topic as well. Well, I, I, I will say this to start with great question. I thought it, I'm glad it's something I said that wasn't hot mic. <laughs> there's some debate over what exactly I said on that hot mic. Uh, but I don't think Ross, there's any debate about what you said on that hot mic. I, uh, I, 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 the tape lied. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about the standard for Carolina football. I think, first of all, if you don't beat State and Duke, consistently you're not beating miami and virginia tech at all uh first why is it important to beat nc state and duke in football and, and i will say this again and i may have said it as what's triggered this question is if carolina loses to state and duke this year in football and beats miami and virginia tech in football i guarantee you there'll be a revolt in the fan base and because you cannot lose to those two schools and accomplish the goals that Carolina football wants to accomplish. For one, NC State's wearing them out on the recruiting trail locally. They are going, and you got to stem that tide. Now, Duke's not a, a consistent threat in football recruiting. They're getting better at it because a lot of uh, Cutcliffe is well liked, but NC State's making a move in state. And I think you see with the growth of the talent level in state, if Carolina can't beat North Carolina State, they're going to lose more and more of those guys. Now, you handle those two first, and that's first. And then you move on to Virginia Tech and Miami. I think Virginia Tech is much more important to beat than Miami for the recruiting issue. Virginia Tech has a lot of um, capital, let's say, that they spend – when they when they come down into these uh, recruiting battles because they they win and they come down here with a reputation that kids listen to and they say look they come down and they say you're looking at these teams that can't even beat themselves out of their state we're a national program so you beat them uh, but you can't beat them unless you beat state and duke consistently and, and i Go ahead. I, well, I, think, I think Miami, competing with Miami, yes, you have to do that to win the Coastal. I don't think it's as, as important on the recruiting side of football. Um, and I think that's where Carolina's been lacking lately. Um, we can debate the coaching all you want, but getting the Jimmys and Joes has been the issue for this football team, in my opinion, over the last several years. So anyway, we can talk more about it, and I'd love to hear Greg's opinion. But go ahead, Ross. Let, let me, let me just me. let me dive into there, kind of to clarify one thing. I think uh, my friend's point was, if you if your level is beating Miami and Virginia Tech and competing at that level, then beating State and Duke is just it it, it happens naturally because you're you're targeting a higher level, a higher standard of competition. And if you handle Virginia Tech and Miami, the assumption is that State and Duke would would just be easy victories. I think that's kind of was, you know, kind of making the standard higher. And I'll, I'll let Greg just dive into that topic now. Yeah, I think that's the the wrong way to look at it, though. And I, I really do believe this is this is kind of a a twofold issue. Come on, Greg, you got to <laughs> give me love. Bring the love this way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I think Tommy's point, his initial point, is, is spot on. Yeah. In the fact that um, you know, if you can if you can handle State and Duke consistently. Uh, that puts you in a position where you're playing better and you can contend with the other teams. And uh, conversely, if you're, if you're beating those other teams, and you should be able to handle NC State and Duke. But you know, there's so many scenarios over the last 40 years with State and Carolina, and, and uh, specifically, I mean, right in 2012, uh, Tom O'Brien 
his his final nail in the coffin was losing to Carolina, and that allowed Yao to kind of push him out the door. Two years ago, if you know, do, if State does not beat Carolina in 2016, uh, good chance Dave Doran would not have his job right now. Uh, but State took care of business, and then you know, we know what happened last year. And you know, John Bunning, I think, is a good example. As bad as his teams were, he found a way to, to consistently beat Duke and State, especially late in his tenure. And so when Butch comes in, and Butch really just kind of downplays the rivalries, saying, ah, you know, every game's the same, I think that is exactly how you have to approach sports. You can't say, oh, we're going to get up for this game. But what does that mean about the other games? Are we not giving it the same energy? And I think that's the challenge of trying to figure out. Every game you play has to be, especially in football, has to be a conference championship game. You have to bring it every single game. And that is so hard to do. And having a lot of talent allows you to do that. But at the same time, especially in this area. Okay, and the same holds true for you know, Bama Auburn, USC Notre Dame, all the especially the local schools, all the SEC schools, ACC schools, Georgia, Georgia Tech. Uh, you have to live around these people. Especially here in the triangle, right? I mean, I live next door to a Duke fan and across the street is an NC State fan. And so I hear all the time Oh, what happened in that game the other night? What happened in that game that you went and covered? You know, and people see that, and people who are just diehard Carolina fans or diehard NC State fans or diehard Duke fans, when their teams lose, they hear about it and they hear about it for a year, and it's every weekend or whatever. Any kind of little jab they can say, they do, and then you throw an ECU into the mix and Wake Forest, and there's just so many teams locally, and so kind of the thought is you can handle. A down year. If, like Bunning was able to do a couple years, you're able to beat State and able to beat Duke. So, well, at least we beat the local schools, so we can tell them to shut up, even though we had a losing record. But when you start having years like in you know, 2016, North Carolina was in position to have a really good year. You have top 20 program towards the end of the year, double-digit favorites against Duke and State, and you lose those games. So even now, two years later, people are saying, well, it was, should have been a good year, but what happened? They choked against State and Duke. And so that entire season has this blemish on it, not because you know, they went 8-5, but because they lost to State and Duke the way they did. And I, I really think that you have to kind of merge those and say, okay, look, you got to take care of the local robberies. That really kind of solidifies your base. And, well, okay, we're building, but at least we're beating these teams we, we, that are nearby that we really care about beating. And then from there, you have to win all the other games. So it, it's been interesting watching Larry Fedora handle it because, as I said, Butch was very much every game is the same, and it, it rankled some people. And Fedora has kind of gone back and forth. You know, he's, oh, yeah, well, we, 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 we approach every game the same. But then you hear the players saying, oh, yeah, well, they put NC State all in the locker room, and you know, we didn't like that, and that kind of gave us extra motivation. So it's a very delicate balance. And some coaches handle it better than others. Some don't even care, uh, but but the fans care. And so I, I think it really is a matter of there, there's two parts of it, but you kind of got to piece them together. Ross, uh, Larry Fedora's record versus Miami versus Larry Fedora's record versus State and State and Duke or even the local schools. Now, how many people give a rip about that record versus Miami? And how many people are irate about the record versus local schools? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's that's my point. Coming from somebody that's been around uh, Carolina, Carolina football forever, I've said it a hundred times and people don't like it. Carolina is an historical, historically, history shows that Carolina's an eight-win football team. <laughs> Here we go. Yep, and we're going to go there. with The ceiling can be 10 or 11 or 12 on a good year. The floor has to be six, but you have to beat State and Duke in those. And when they do that, if if Mitch Trubisky would have gone eight and four and beat State and Duke rather than eight and five and lost to State and Duke, 
you might hear some people say, damn, they had the number two pick in the draft and can only go eight and four. But I guarantee you that it wouldn't be the homegrown local folks. It wouldn't be the people on the Inside Carolina message boards talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think state is huge, especially like I think your, your point about the in-state recruiting and how it's kind of shifting that way. And that's a critical rivalry. I mean, and I, I feel like more people interact with state fans on a daily basis. I have tons of state friends. That's a bigger football rivalry. Not many Duke football fans that you see at the grocery store and in the neighborhood and stuff. I mean, UNC should not have to be – they should not be losing to Duke. I think that's a kind of an afterthought. Uh, obviously, the last couple of years they have. But um, I think Virginia Tech's kind of um, emergence as a recruiting power in the state. You look at Dax Holyfield, uh, Trey Turner out of Greensboro, their ability to kind of land some of the bigger top-notch recruits in the state is huge. And that's becoming uh, quite the rivalry as well. So those two schools, those two, those two technical schools are, uh, I think, becoming the, the two bigger rivalries. And it's just an interesting conversation of, of – the standard of winning and, and the rivalries and, and where emphasis should be placed. But I mean, every game is, uh, you know, it's just one win, a win's a win. That's what the will say, you know, treat every game the same. So um, good, uh, good discussion. That got you all a little fired up. Uh, yeah, Greg, uh, it's your homework. So when we come back next Tuesday, Greg, it's, it's your homework. One question to, to, to get the juices flowing, to get us going. We'll close every show this summer with a, a question that we each pose the other and see if we can't get some people fired up. We got anything left but, for this one, boys? Yeah, I it. do. I do. Oh, on oh, this no. topic. <laughs> on, on this topic. But but seriously, for and I would I would like to know kind of what our, our listeners think about this as well. Yeah, Tommy, you mentioned Carolina kind of being a, an eight win program. For the the average Dow Hard fan for North Carolina. I mean, are are you not in a situation where you want to go you have seven, eight wins most years with an occasional year of contending for the Coastal and maybe the ACC Championship? I mean, if you look at all these teams that have had a ton of success, sure, there's some flash in the pans. But, I mean, like Baylor, you know, back before everything happened with Brawls. I mean, they they were winning like – you eight, nine, and then it was 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And then all of a sudden they're in a conversation. Go back to Oregon with Bilotti. They were winning eight, nine, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And then all of a sudden Chip Kelly takes over and that's a legitimate program. I mean, this is a long process to get to be considered an elite. And you don't do it winning, you know, five games here, six games, seven games, a 10 game season here, which is great but then you're back to eight, and then you're to whatever. I mean, you have to consistently build, and you have to be very good for a long period of time. It, like, I mean, Clemson's a great example. They didn't all of a sudden become great. They slowly built up, had some very good years, maybe some not-so-great years, and then they were just fantastic under Dabo. And so I think for where UNC is right now, I, I think you have to be happy with you know, a seven, eight-year seven, eight win team with the hopes of occasionally winning 10 or 11 and trying to contend for an ACC title. And then if we see signs that, okay, the average is no longer seven or eight wins, it's now nine or 10. At that point, you can say, okay, now we expect to consistently contend for an ACC title and maybe beyond. Am I, am I off in that line of thought? No, I, I, I 100% agree with that. And that's why I've said it's an eight-win program with every two, three, four years contend for an ACC championship. But even in the worst of times, you go six and six and go to a bowl game. That is North Carolina football. You can't go three and nine after two years after winning 11. or You're sitting at 11 and one, if my memory serves. And – you go from sitting at eleven and one, playing for an ACC championship to a three and nine season. Those are the type of things that cannot happen. And I think if people were honest with themselves, and I'm not talking about the absolute diehard, awesome people that we have on Tar Pit message boards that are all in all the time. I'm talking about the everyday North Carolina football fan. 
you would not find one that would be disappointed with an eight win season averaged out every year for from here to eternity. I just don't think much more than that. Now I'm not saying you can't win ACC every you know three, four, five years, but eight wins averaged out over the next twenty years, everybody listening to this podcast would take it. I have a I have a statement that might trigger some some UNC fans. <laughs> um maybe not on this part, maybe not IC IC subscribers and, and listeners, but man, I feel like UNC football, the UNC athletic department has to commit more to football. I mean, we're trying to UNC's trying to support all these 27 sports and building all these new stadiums for all these Olympic sports. They got to invest in the football program. They're, you know, you know, letting guys like Taylor Vipolis leave and they're, they're not having the recruiting staff and marketing staff they need. They've got to put more money into it. Tons pump money into the football program. Personally. I mean, who cares about these other sports? I mean, give them the, <laughs> as little money as possible to keep them afloat, put some money into women's soccer. Let's get some more championships, for women's soccer, and just pump up football to, to give them what they need in terms of recruiting and marketing. And I mean, get get it get it going. I mean, let's go. That's uh, that's kind of my take. I've kind of thought about. I got some people in my ear that that have also expressed those feelings to me about just the lack of marketing and the the need for just more money and more focus on building football to where it needs to be. Because I mean, I mean, who really cares about? softball and whatever other stuff oh my lord it's not the well or the bell or the stone wall ross it's the university for the people and yeah. all those and, sports and what brings in money what brings in money football a winning football program i th- this is a podcast that we can have maybe bring in buck and all that but one thing and i'll say this and there's something we can talk about later is one thing is the the carolina attitude needs to change overall and it's not just, you know, the administration towards uh, whatever. It's, you know, the Rams club towards their members. It's student it's, fan it's, support. Yeah, it's the, and it's the coaching staff towards um, recruiting as far as, it, you know, it. if I've got 20 offers um, from every school in the country and you come in and think you're giving me the greatest thing ever, you're giving me an offer to North Carolina, and it just doesn't kind of work for these kids just just a different mindset change it's all about money you got to have money but you also have to have the mindset to make it work i think that's what clemson's done and that's the model to follow as far as the football program but anyway let's let greg the voice of reason we gotta gotta get out of here yeah Yeah, you got some dumplings to eat that's right i uh, asian dumplings greg i disagree with that approach i mean to be honest ross um I think one of the, the great things about UNC is the fact that they do have such a wealth of talented programs. I think that's a, a point of pride. Um, you know, Stanford kind of takes the cake with all they're able to do. But if you go to Stanford, which we were there last year, um, I mean, it's not like they have some huge, beautiful football stadium. I mean, they don't because they know they have to spread that money out. But yet, David Shaw and Harbaugh before him, we're able to build you know, very good football programs. Uh, and so the money helps, no doubt. But I, I and people know that, that I was a big Butch Davis fan. But UNC, uh, some of the guys that, that got together and really pushed for Butch Davis to be hired, I think they had great foresight in saying, you know, if we can get an excellent coach in here, we can make some noise. And unfortunately, uh, kind of the – the way things were set up, uh, UNC was not prepared for big time football at that point in time. UNC being the uh, the university itself, the administration, they were not ready for it. And so when adversity hit, uh, they just weren't prepared. And we saw how everything kind of crumbled. Um, I think now uh, UNC has has the staff in place in terms of administration-wise. Uh, I think Bubba does a fantastic job. Um, I don't think you you just dismiss um, the football program right now and say, you know, Larry, you've got to win more or you're going to have to hit the road. I think you have to have some patience. You have to decide, is he doing the things that we think can lead to having success? 
Um, you know, obviously the jury's still out there, but he's shown a willingness to change things. He's shown an ability to get to the ACC championship game, which was a first for UNC. So there are some positives there. Uh, but it's not like Clemson said, you know what? We're sick of this being average. We're going to go out. We're going to throw $5 million at the best coach on the market. What did they do? They hired their friggin' wide receiver coach. and said, you know what? You coach the rest of this year while we try to figure out what we're going to do. And they hit gold. That's all that was. Now, they look like geniuses now, but at the time, everybody's like, what? What are they doing? And they rolled the dice, and it worked. Um, and so money helps, no doubt, but there are different ways of, of accomplishing it. And the Alabamas and the Ohio States and the Florida States and the Texases and all those teams can throw you know, tons of money. Not every school is able to do that, especially you know, when you're – Goal is to have a well-rounded athletic program, which which means a lot to people at UNC. Uh, you just have to get creative. And that's you know, Buck Sanders. Give him credit. For years, he said, you know what? UNC is not in a position to have a great football program when they line up and play the exact same kind of ball that every other team plays. They don't recruit well enough. They have to get creative offensively. And that's why he was such a big fan of the Fedora hire because of how Fedora is very unique in his offensive system. And that's kind of what it takes. You have to think outside the box. You have to get lucky. A lot of things have to go your way. Um, but I don't think it's a matter of saying, you know what, screw all the other sports, dump everything into football, because then you're left really with nothing. Great stuff. I'm going to have to listen to this one again to remember what we talked about uh, in the first portion. But Ross and Greg, it's been a pretty awesome show. Epic. We'll call this one Epic. <laughs> Longest one ever, too, maybe, perhaps. But uh appreciate you guys joining me, and I uh, look forward to our next one. All right, see you, Tommy. Enjoy it, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. 